Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website, online at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T.org. And I'm joined by my co-host, Amber Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you, and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. And I have some exciting news to share. The June print edition of The Independent hit the streets of New York today. You can find copies in our red and white news boxes across the city and in more than 60 public libraries, as well as independent bookstores, cafes, laundromats, social movement centers, and so on. We'll be talking more about our cover story later on in the show. In today's show, we're going to be we're going to hear from a couple of really dynamic grassroots groups that are doing the hard work of not just organizing people, but assisting and empowering working class people to become their own organizers by forming things like tenant associations and labor unions. That's right. In our first segment, we'll be speaking with Brooklyn Eviction Defense about how they've moved from mounting last-minute defenses to helping embattled tenants. We'll speak to one today to staving off evictions to start having tenants start their own tenant associations. Right. And later in the show, we'll speak with two organizers with the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee that sprang up early in the pandemic and has advised thousands of workers on how to collectively organize to fight for their rights and in some cases how to organize their own unions. But first, we want to get a quick update from you, John, on a story you've been following involving New York State's electoral politics and redistricting. Yes, the redistricting of congressional, state, and local offices takes place every 10 years following the release of a new census. It can seem like a nerdy abstraction, but a lot is at stake in this process. Under the U.S. Constitution, state legislatures are tasked with drawing all congressional districts as well as their own districts. The potential outcomes can greatly favor one political party or another. Individual politicians can reshape districts to shore up support or deter opponents. And this process has become more precise in recent years with developments in uh, 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 computers and ability to track uh, uh, people's uh, uh, voting habits and, and consumer habits and everything else. And this process also affects a community's ability to get the resources and responsive representation that they need. Uh, and that can all also be shaped in this process. Here in New York, redistricting has turned into an epic mess. Uh, thanks to our politicians. Without going into a lot of details, the maps for Congress and the state Senate drawn by the Democrats in the state legislature earlier this year were thrown out by the state's top court and control over the map making landed in the hands of a Republican judge in Steuben County, New York. He in turn appointed a supposedly neutral third party expert to draw the maps. What are some of the key takeaways, John, from the final maps that were released late Friday night? Right. So the first thing is, we're now going to have two sets of primaries uh, this summer. There will be uh, primaries on uh, June 28th for the statewide races, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, uh, and also uh, for all the state assembly seats. And then we'll have a second set of primaries on August 23rd in the middle of August. Uh, and that will be for uh, all the congressional and state Senate seats. Now, what does this all mean? Well, for one thing, it's a big setback for congressional Democrats who had hoped that uh, New York could successfully uh, gerrymander uh, their districts uh, and and send more Democrats to Congress next year. A number of Republican states have done the opposite 
on behalf of Republicans, and, and there was a hope New York could achieve the same. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, also, with these, uh, the final maps that came out on Friday after some initial maps went out, uh, some of the communities of interest uh, that had been dismembered were were reestablished. Uh, in redistricting, it's seen as very important for uh, especially historically marginalized communities to be preserved intact so they can uh, be more effectively represented. It looked like Bed-Stuy was going to be uh, uh, torn in, in several pieces. Um, it was uh, reunified into one district. Sunset Park was uh, realigned uh, uh, with the Lower East Side in, in Chinatown. However, Co-op City up in the Northeast Bronx was uh, cracked up several different ways, and the congressman up there, Jamal Bowman, is very unhappy about it. Um, also, obviously, this sets in motion a whole game of uh, musical chairs as different politicians uh, try to figure out which districts they might run in. Uh, in Manhattan, we have two 30-year incumbents, Gerald Nadler and Carolyn Maloney. Uh, they're now in the same district. They're going to run against each other. They're essentially Their politics are essentially the same, so we'll see what happens. There's a new congressional district the 10th district uh, for lower Manhattan and on through Brooklyn out to Park Slope. Uh, Bill de Blasio, our former mayor, says he's going to run. A bunch of other younger, ambitious politicians are planning on running, including Yulene Niu, a progressive firebrand from the state assembly. And uh, and then uh, finally, this incredible saga just north of the city up in Westchester County, uh, where one of the most powerful Democrats in, in Congress, Sean Patrick Maloney, decided to shift districts uh, and, and basically ran off, uh, Mondaire Jones, a, a progressive freshman a legislator who's now also going to uh, come to Manhattan to run in that 10th uh, congressional district. Uh, and it looked like Maloney was going to get away with it today. Uh, state Senator Alessandra Biaggi announced she was entering that race up in the, the 17th district in Westchester County. And, uh, she's been one of the staunchest progressives in the, in the state Senate the last few years. She knocked off a powerful Cuomo ally four years ago, and she's coming back for a second round uh, to go after Sean Patrick Maloney, who's a dar- darling of, uh, Wall Street. So we'll, you know, we'll see how this all goes and we'll certainly be, uh, you know, following it more o- over the, over the course of the summer. And, um, yeah, uh, you know, there, even though electoral politics can sometimes be disappointing or not deliver as much as, is progressives and socialists would hope it still has uh, importance in terms of who's in there or who's not. And uh, when you see these special interests throwing all kinds of money around to stop progressives or socialists from getting elected to office, it, it suggests they certainly don't want leftists anywhere near institutional power of that sort. Right, but, John. And um, I understand there's a tool you can actually plug your address into to see if you've been redistricted. Uh, right. It, it's called, uh, if, if you Google, have I been redistricted and, and the city, which is an, uh, an online, uh, a news uh, publication here in New York. If you plug in, I have I been redistricted and the city, uh, you'll get this, uh, link that allows you to just put your address in and see if you've been shuffled around or not. So, cool. um, but yeah, I'm excited to, uh, now that we've talked a little bit about the electoral stuff to, hear from uh, uh, some of the grassroots organizers we have lined up for today. Yeah, well, here we go into it. We're going to be joined first by our tenant organizers. So 
Uh, Syria McNeil is being denied a lease to her family home after her mother's passing in February, and she is determined to rally support to stop this act of displacement in Clinton Hill. Located at 400 Clinton Avenue, the apartment has been in the McNeil family since 1966. And Shirley McNeil, the mother who unfortunately just passed, was a widow and single mom of five daughters since the passing of her husband. The family is still recognized by dozens of neighborhoods who recall Miss McNeil. And now, Syria wants to preserve her family's legacy in the neighborhood and move into her childhood home, but the management has other plans. The apartment is rent-stabilized, and the management likely wants to change that and bring it up to market rate. But we're going to hear from the actual people who are fighting this. We have Syria McNeil. Welcome. And we also have Dylan Henderson and maybe another comrade from BED, which is Brooklyn Eviction Defense, who are working on this campaign with Syria. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for having us on. Um, Syria, Syria, are you there? Syria. Um, okay. Well, I can uh, start to fill you in on just like kind of what's been going on so far. While maybe uh, uh, yeah. Syria- so you know what we'll do? We'll start uh, talking about the greater tenant organizing that's going on that was going to be our, our second questions we'll save the questions for syria to hope we can hear them from her if if she doesn't able to get through it we'll, we'll ask you guys we know dylan is very very familiar with this case dylan's been working on it ever since bed brooklyn eviction defense brooklyn eviction defense is bed we'll be saying that a lot ever since bed got involved um with this campaign but for now just tell us a little bit about what the new york eviction crisis, what New York housing is looking like now after the eviction moratorium ended mid-January. Of course, we were still having some illegal evictions, you know, during the two years that it existed. But what's going on um, right now? What's eviction crisis looking like? Um, yeah, so I have uh, one of uh, our co-organizers, uh, Krill, on with us to um, talk a little bit about what, like, tenant organizing is looking like right now. Mm-hmm. Um but I guess the the short answer is that it's uh it's looking really bad since the moratorium expired in uh in earlier uh, of 2022. I mean, um, yeah, it, I mean the moratorium never stopped like evictions from happening in the first place. I mean, illegal evictions or people that kind of fell through the cracks and weren't aware of like how to uh, uh, apply uh be uh exempt from evictions through the moratorium like we're constantly getting evicted anyways but obviously there's just like a massive like flood of uh that has overwhelmed the courts um since the passing of the moratorium and that flood has resulted in things like people not being able to get representation and having to go to court with uh and representing themselves because there are just simply not like lawyers available to take their cases um which obviously is something like that you don't expect to happen. Like you expect that like everyone will get free legal representation, but like that is actually just not the case. It's not actually being provided and you'll still be forced to like, you know, go and try to defend yourself um, against sometimes really ridiculous things. Um, Right. And that's a a law that passed in 2019 uh, was a big, you know, big one for tenants. They pushed for that for a while, the right to counsel and exactly that's being denied all over the five boroughs right now because of the rate of evictions. Right. There's simply not enough lawyers to go around and the judges won't defer the cases. 
Right. Yeah, they're not slowing them down at all. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Exactly. Like the right. <laughs> it, it, you really don't have a right to counsel. It's like as as only as long as the resources are there do you get that. Um, right. But, and talk a little bit about. So, you know, it's a pretty bad situation. We know about people getting kicked out of their houses. We know also within housing, there's attacks on NYCHA. There's been huge attacks on homeless people. You know, it it really does feel like a crisis for some in the city. So tell us about how BED is responding, a little bit about what BED does at its base, and then how you've been responding recently, particularly in amassing these TAs, you know, around Brooklyn. That's great. Uh, Yeah. So... Um, Krill, do you, do you want to maybe start with this and then, uh, we can see where that goes? Yeah, totally. Um, can everyone hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, perfect. Um, I'm Krill. Um, as Dylan was saying, I'm an organizer with bed. Um, and I guess, yeah, so Brooklyn eviction offense is, um, a group of tenants. So a tenant is any person who's not like fully in control of their housing. So someone who's like not a landlord, um, uh, and that's also most of the people in New York City, right? So BED is kind of focused on developing um, tenant power through building like localized TAs. So a tenant association is just like essentially a association of tenants within a building that um, are working collectively to uh, be more in control of their housing. So that means like responding to crisis situations, but also that just means like taking care of each other and making sure that... Uh, the needs of the people of yourself and the people of your building are being met. Um, and I guess beds, um, focus came from the crisis response to like all of the, um, illegal evictions and legal evictions that were happening during the pandemic. That's kind of when bed, um, started, I guess, formally. Um, and because we know in New York City, it's really hard to like kind of gain collective power with working class people because people are usually just honestly on the grind and like trying to survive. Um, I guess bed strategic yeah. focus has been um, understanding that everyone has housing and everyone has insecure housing, especially in New York City, especially in the previous segment you guys were talking about like redistricting and like processes of gentrification that are happening all of those processes happen through people's housing right so if we can develop uh ways that people feel like they can gain collective power through getting control over their housing um that's kind of one step to further like resist uh processes of gentrification and like uh yeah oppressing the working class and that kind of stuff uh, krill can i can i just jump in um can you explain a little further uh, uh, what a tenant association is does it have some sort of uh, legal uh, recognition when it's formed and and how is it officially formed and how how do, how do you uh, help people uh, go through that process totally totally thank you for that question i guess that yeah i totally did not define that um so a tenants association the tenants associations that we like bed forms and works with are autonomous tenants associations which literally means you are the only requirement of a tenants association is that you meet regularly um and it's actually protected under new york state law um like your landlord cannot like bar you from meeting as a tenants association like it's protected um and it essentially just means that you're meeting regularly and you can kind of discuss whatever you want to discuss um but it's just tenants being in conversation with each other um and these autonomous tenants associations are ones that are not um, like funded by anyone outside of the building and they're not like connected to management in any way because there's also 
like the tenant um, who's on today, in her building, there's a tenants association that is kind of in cahoots with management a little bit. So it's not necessarily like in the interests of the people who are in the building. Um, it's kind of making these decisions kind of a hierarchical form that's not very democratic. Um, and thus this tenant kind of has had tension with them. So the tenants association that beds, bed works with are ones that are just like democratically formed, um, and meet regularly to discuss housing. Yeah. And, and talk a little bit about, and we'll hear more about this too with the current case that we're going to go to in Clinton Hill, but talk about what you've seen might seem obvious, but what you've seen in how like group power works, right? We think about this a lot at worker unions. How does, how do tenants uniting work and what kind of results are tenants seeing when they unite versus when they're trying to fight their landlord as an individual, which many are. Yeah, totally. Um, so I've, examples. I've only, sorry, I said, give us some examples, but I mumbled that. Oh, you're so fine. Yeah. Um, the biggest one that we've seen is, uh, tenants lobbying against rent hikes. Um, that's usually like the biggest thing, at least now, like we have, um, a lot of bed members right now are starting their own TAs or are already in TAs. Um, and that's how they become involved with bed. So we're constantly working with people's like different situations. Um, the biggest thing is rent hikes. Um, we've seen like, Units get stabilized that aren't stabilized and then units that are stabilized get um, money back from their landlords because their landlords have been upcharging them. Those are the kind of wins that we see in terms of like rent hikes. We've also seen um, like one of our one of our organizers is part of a TA formed a TA in their building and there was an issue with um, package theft. So they collectively lobbied like within the tenants association and got these like lockers installed Um in the basement for like all of the tenants to use, um, to like solve that problem. Um, stuff like that is kind of like examples of the wins that you can get in a tenants association. Um, we're also interested in, in like building tenants associations across buildings, um, that are owned by the same management company or same landlord. Um, because then that collective power just kind of builds and builds. And uh, and just talk a little bit about the landlords and that aspect of it and that, you know, how many are small landlords, how many are big landlords, do most of them own many buildings, rich, are they, are they wealthy? <laughs> um, well, it kind of depends on the landlord. Um, I think that there's like, I don't know, I think in, in Brooklyn specifically, a lot of the tenants associations that we've worked with, which are like bed members or... Um, yeah, just people that we've worked with have been, um, like small landlords that kind of, um, have like a couple properties, but are maybe like a little bit more neglectful. There's also like large management companies that, um, like don't really care about what happens to their buildings. They're just like concerned with like growth. And those are usually the ones that are involved with, um, like the situation that the tenant who's on today, um, is experiencing where they're like trying to price old tenants out. And kind of like renovate those units and neglect the other units so that conditions get so bad that people move out and then they can just uh, put those units at market value instead of rent stabilizing them or something like that. Um, And then there's also like, there's like, I grew up in a place where the landlord lived in the building. So it kind of varies, which also like bed really likes to use a diversity of tactics when interacting with landlords. Um, 
And it's really important if you want to start your own TA to like really research your management company or landlord to figure out if they have multiple properties, if they have like one or two, are they rich? Do they live in the state? Some landlords in New York City don't even live here. Um, you could be anywhere of, in the world. Exactly. Yeah. And they're still like exploiting you for housing. <laughs> um yeah, so it kind of all depends and that like kind of influences beds tactics in terms of like collectivizing demands um and getting wins for tenants. Can you uh say how many uh active tenant associations uh bed has at this point and and this uh, uh, general assembly uh, y'all are going to be doing in the in the near future as you bring people together? Um I think I can't remember how many Dylan, do you know how many tenants associations we have right now that are active? Um, <laughs> I'd say somewhere in the range of like three, but like there's also many that are like being worked on. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not super. Yeah. A, a work in progress. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. right now I know from, I'm involved in the tenant organizing working group and we have, um, like, I know that bed members have like three very active, like consistently meeting TAs. And then there's like three or four that are like being formed actively. And there's also, we had our general assembly, um, last Sunday and, um, we were able to like talk about kind of an interest that bed members have in organizing their own tenants associations in their own buildings. Um, so there's right. like a really big interest in, um, people doing that big there and uh sorry to cut you off but uh, we, no, we, we have our we have our tenant on i think so um big interest there but yeah so that's like a newer work of beds beds started out as eviction response and just kind of like you know telling people that they could start their own tas and maybe like feeding them to existing um tas or tenants unions and now they're 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 you know their breadth of of work is expanding which is great love to see it um do we have you with us syria Yes, I'm here. Yes, great. Welcome. Welcome to WBAI. Welcome to WBAI. We're so happy to have you here. We just caught up with some of the Brooklyn Eviction Defense folks, but uh, we want to hear your story from you. So um, just talk. Can you see me? We can't see you, but you can hear us. Can you? uh, We can hear you. Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you guys loud and clear. I don't know why my video isn't on. That's okay. It's good enough for radio. Yeah, so don't worry about it. First off, you know, we'd like to obviously give our condolences for the loss of your mother and dealing with this house, housing difficulty on top of it is very difficult. Um, can only imagine. But first, just tell us a little bit about the harassment and neglect your mother faced when she was living in the apartment and what issues and effects that had on her health. First of all, I want to say hello to everybody today. This is Saria McNeil. I'm representing my mom, Shirley McNeil, for 400 Clinton Avenue. My mom has been living there since 1966 with five children that she raised by herself. Um, I want to say um, her neglect for me started back in the 70s when she was bit by a dog in the building. The drug her the bit from one side of the arm to the next. It deemed her permanently disabled. Um, and this is what she did for a living. My mom was a professional, you know, housekeeper, made, had her own business, and as well as a, as a basketball player. So um, when the dog took away, when the Brock Waller came from under the stairs in 19, 
79, around 70, about right, 72, I think it was. And um, it was a super dog at the time. It wasn't owned by the same people that it's owned by now. So I can see, I am figuring that that contributed to the first part of her disability, doing her permanently disabled. Then um, in the later times of her years after, you know, living there and, um, since she had like 16 violations, she's had violations for years. I'm talking about 20 years, which is totally ridiculous. And so, in fact, the people from the um, code enforcement called me yesterday, today, again, for the complaint of the, um, the harassment was is that they were trying to kick her out. They wanted to rejectify her and, you know, bring to, to the market value rate or to bring the property up beyond market value rate by, um, going in and changing everything. So the first problem started when they put the bathroom in the bedroom over my old bedroom, which is a bedroom. So you have all your piping and everything over there. So um, it started, every time they would take a bath, they would run the tub over. So it started coming through my bedroom, through the electrical at the top of the ceiling. And it's such a big hole over there now that literally one more of those overflows and the tub is going to come through the roof. You know, the ceiling is going to come down over my head. And so that came down on the side of the walls, which damaged pictures. Wow. I had to literally have buckets out in the middle of the floor. So along with that, the violations were, we have 16 violations. They continue to get paid because my mom has Section 8 and HUD, like I do as well. So they were getting money, but they weren't fixing any of the violations, and they were just constantly spraying yeah. her along. Mm-hmm. The last draw was for me in 2015 when my mom got up there and I told her not to do it. And she decided she's going to change the bulb because the ceilings are high in these buildings. And she got up there to put the bulb in and she fell and broke her hip, which made her, she laid on the floor for days, first of all. And um, she had to have a complete hip replacement. And that really ruined her permanently disabled. And I feel that they contributed to the negligence of her death, which I went to a speaking on Saturday with all these lawyers like they did for George Floyd. That's a whole nother horse of another color. So when she fell, she had to learn how to do everything, but that made her permanent disability. She started a garden on Carlton Avenue 30 years ago, a garden, a floral garden. And she was never able to plant her onions, her tomatoes, and the things that she loved. So after she got hurt, she continued to go and oversee the garden and, 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 and try to plant, but they would just plant it for her, you know, Harold Undergrow. Is one of the people was, but he's my mom was one of the founders. She started the garden on Carlton Avenue 30 years ago. This is the love of her life. She's a farmer like myself, and she's also an amazing horticulturalist. So that was her love. That was her passion. That gave her happiness, as well as contributing to the community, you know, and being able to have a greenhouse in in, in the city. So um, in her home, where she has beautiful flowers. She um, did a lot of the work, like holes in the walls, lead paint. The water is so hot. When my mom would go to take a bath or go wash dishes, you could literally scald yourself to death. And um, so they sent out an inspector two weeks ago. So since I've been dealing with the situation, I've called code enforcement 300 times, literally. literally. Wow. And and just uh, for for the sake of time, Syria, tell us a little bit about um, sorry, Syria. Tell us a little bit uh, about if you don't mind talking about how um, at towards the end of her life, some issues with floorboards actually directly related oh, my mom to. Died. 
My, the, first of all, my mom did all, everything in the house herself. My mom has been there since 1966. The super would come up there and get all the things my mom was giving away to him, but he wasn't really qualified to fix these issues. So therefore, in my mom's, my mom fell and died. My mom slipped because she was rugs down. When I'm talking about linoleum tiles, things that they should have been doing, all the floorboards. So the tiles come up. Everything comes up on the floor. So she, I feel it contributed to her death because she was very depressed with my nephew being dying from cancer, geoplasm cancer. So she's coming into the bedroom where she slips and falls. Yes, she had a heart attack, but it doesn't help the fact that they had the linoleum up off the floor where she would slip. And um, the floorboards are not flat, you know. So I feel my mom, it could give it to my mom's because I feel when she went in the room, she had the heart attack, and she slipped. When she slipped, she fell in her head. So she had blood in the front of her face. When I saw her, my mom was so black, they wasn't going to be able to bring her back. So they told me I had to have a closed casket. I feel that, yes, I know she had a heart attack, but I feel that the negligence of that, you know, she slipped. She fell. And she was on the floor for two days when they found her. She died on on a Wednesday. And, 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 and you had and you had complained about the floorboards, correct? Oh, we we have put massive massive complaints in. Massive, okay, so like, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so you complain about the floorboards, and these are the same ones she she tripped on. Excuse me for interrupting you, Surya. Yeah. I just uh, we we don't have a ton of time here, but I want to know quickly what uh, and Bed, you can chime in on this too. What you all are doing in response? Um, what the demands are? What I you're was doing? Told we're demanding a lease, first of all, for my mom's place because she's been there since 1966. All of the violations and stuff like that, they're never here to. So HUD said that they have to come out and they have to fix it. So they sent an inspector out for the room where the tub is coming through, as well as for the hot water. It's been two specific inspectors, supervisors, to say they're going to fix this. And Section 8 said that they don't care about the reason they were getting their money and they wasn't fixing it. So the reason the lease was not signed is because of the fact that they had not completed these things, you know, these violations. They were not adhered to. So that's the reason why Section 8 could not approve it for her to have the lease completed. And right. so it, it, um, because they got fined, only when they started, they haven't fixed anything yet. This supervisor told me, don't worry about nothing. They are going to take care of this. He promised me that. Now, that's mm. HUD and housing. This is, this is code enforcement, HUD and housing. So what they did was they fined him. So right. someone uh, called on my behalf again today. And so they called me yesterday and they called me today. And every time they call me, they say they're supposed to have it fixed by this particular date. They haven't done anything. Right. In, in Syria, so, we, we'll have to leave uh, soon. But can you uh, describe how you became uh, involved with uh, a bed and, and how other people can also get involved with oh, yeah. uh, so right now I'm defense? currently working with Renee Callum on her campaign for housing. I'm a part of NAFTA and HUD out of DC and I came in to meet um eviction defense fund is because I went down to one forty one Livingston and they were out there and I was oh. going to fight for my, my mom's place. This was three days after she died and the landlord told me when was I gonna leave and when was I getting out and I told him never. So <laughs> when I went down there I saw these guys sitting outside and they were protesting they was just, you know telling about what they do. And so I could have gone with Black Lives Matter, but I chose them because they are there on the front scene. They're out, and they came straight away and supported me and said, what do you need us to do? And they was foot on the ground fighting with me from the beginning. 
Right. And just for clarity, that's beautiful, Surya. Just for clarity, 141 Livingston is Brooklyn Housing Court. Bed goes out there. They tables face-to-face interaction. Now, we're going to have to leave it there with you all. But quickly before we go, Dylan, just how can people follow, get involved with Brooklyn Eviction Defense um, if they need? And what should tenants do who are not in Brooklyn? Uh, let's see. So if you want to uh, get involved with Brooklyn Eviction Defense, like, um, so our hotline number uh, that you call if you're a tenant in need is uh, 917-982-2265. Um, you can also go to our website, which is brooklynevictiondefense.org, uh, or you can find us on social medias where it's just our name. Um, so, uh, uh, and then if you're not in Brooklyn, I mean, there's... um. Uh, there's a lot of organizations that we work with, like around the city that do similar work that are small, either um, like as tenant associations or mutual aids or whatever. I think that the best place to start is like you can still contact us and we can kind of refer you to like a um, some, somewhere that we've worked with before that we can form connections with. Um, so, I mean, I think it's always best to work with like these small organizations rather than like these massive like nonprofits or something like that, because they're usually able to get like more uh, agency and kind of like what decisions you're making regarding your situation right as Saria can attest a text too so please just reach out to Brooklyn Eviction Defense um if you're dealing with any of these issues we've got a lot of tenants out there right now um who who could uh support each other so thank you so much Saria McNeil and Dylan Henderson of Brooklyn Eviction Defense for joining us we are quickly going to go to a music break and then we'll be right back with you thousand miles from my home Walking a road other men have gone down I'm seeing your world of people and things Here paupers and peasants and princes and kings Guthrie, I wrote you a song About a funny old world that's a-coming along Seems sick and it's hungry, it's tired and it's torn It looks like it's a-dying and it's hardly been born Guthrie, but I know that you know All the things that I'm a-saying And a many times more I'm a-singing you this song But I can't sing enough Cause there's not many men Who've done the things that you've done Cisco and Sunny and Lead Belly too And to all the good people that traveled with you Here's to the hearts and the hands of the men That come with the dust and are gone with the wind 
That was Song to Woody by Bob Dylan. Uh, today is Bob Dylan's 81st birthday. Woody Guthrie, the late folk singer who focused on themes of American socialism and anti-fascism, was a hero of Dylan's. Welcome back to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton. Before we continue with our second segment, I'm asking everyone who can do so to give to WBAI and help keep peace and justice radio on the air here in New York, beaming it signal across the five boroughs and beyond number two, one, two, two, zero, nine, two, nine, five, zero. That's two, one, two, two, zero, nine, two, nine, five, zero, or go to give number two, WBAI.org. You can make a one-time donation or sign up for as little as $10 a month to become a WBAI buddy and receive all sorts of awesome benefits. Right. And, you know, a lot of people listening might think, oh, someone else is going to give. But if everyone thinks that, then we're not going to be able to pay our rent and keep getting our voices across these airwaves. So if you want to hear from more tenants, from more workers, from people organizing tenants, people organizing workers, please, please give. You could give five bucks a month. You could do it. That's just a slice of pizza or two or five if you're getting a dollar slice. But call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 or give the number two WBAI.org. Give the number two WBAI.org to keep us around. Now, John, we're turning to our, our last segment, right? That's right. And in, in our uh, second and final segment, uh, we're going to be looking at a group that is pioneering a new model of labor organizing that fills a huge void left by traditional unions that don't emphasize uh, so much uh, organizing the unorganized. Uh, the Indies, Omegagarian, uh, wrote the cover story on the uh, for this month's uh, print edition of The Independent on the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, Committee or EWOC, and uh, uh, Amba, you covered various labor battles in the city over the past year, including spending many months uh, covering the struggle uh, to win a union at Amazon's uh, Staten Island warehouses. Uh, what did you find most interesting uh, as you uh, dove into this story about Ewok? Well, um, so much is interesting, but I think something that really stands out for me is, you know, after having spoken with um, a fair amount of young workers, but also in doing this coverage, a lot of older people who have been involved in the labor movement and in union organizing for a long time and who have uh, sort of been very frustrated now for a long time with the lack of action with all time lows now for the past 20, 30 years and organizing in elections coming now, uh, you know, there's this surge all of a sudden. And it really shows that, you know, when workers come out of the woodwork and say, we want rights. And when something big happens, like a pandemic that really unveils a lot of the um, corruption and, and inability for the U.S. government to sort of provide um, the basic needs of its people and to sort of oversee workers' rights, then people are going to come out and say, we want rights. And it just shows that it is possible to actualize social change, even when it feels like it's not. But you have to say that you want it and do something about it and get together with other people in a similar situation and act. And it can work because look at what we're seeing. So 
with that, um, we're really happy to be joined by uh, two of the EWOC organizers. So again, EWOC, Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, we're going to use the acronym EWOC um, here today. We're going to, we're with Eric Dernbach, longtime organizer, and uh, we now too have Wen Zwang, and they both are, are really in the thick of it with EWOC. Welcome both of you to WBAI Radio. Thanks. Great to be here. Hey, good to be here. Great. Uh, when let's start with you. Uh, can you describe how EWOC uh, began two years ago and what the motivation was and how it's been able to help workers uh, since then? Yeah, I feel like Eric was actually involved maybe earlier than I was, but I think it was really coming on the heels of, you know, like uh, the Bernie campaign ending and um, we were in the midst of the pandemic. And it was the start of that. And also we had been met with you know, more or less the great resignation of sorts, as people were saying. Um, so it was just all this like confluence of a bunch of different unfortunate things that I think, while unfortunate, uh, made it so that woke workers up a little bit. Um, they got, I think, uh, across the board, a lot of, you know, usually unorgan- uh, difficult to organize industries like service, like retail, you know, both places that I've worked a lot of my life in as well, um, sort of came, uh, stood up and said, you know, this is actually really awful. Our health is at risk. Uh, some of these workers don't have proper health and health guidelines at the workplace. Um, and it really got to a boiling point where we we're like, okay, these are our lives. You know, we work, this is what we do with our lives and this is our lives and we need to do something about it. And I think that that's where, um, that's where Ewok kind of came in and, and started and uh, answered to for a really long time. And since then, I think has grown in different shapes and ways. But I think that general principle sort of remind, remains the same, which is just that we really try to help offer support to an answer to be something, you know, be someone on the other end for every worker and in every industry uh, at whatever level of organizing that they're at. Um, and I think that that's something that's very rare, has not existed before. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Eric, if you want to add a little bit to that. I think that that was my brief little elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. I mean, there certainly was a need two years ago to find ways to assist tens of millions of essential workers that we're confronting more dangerous conditions at work. And I've been working for unions for, for over 20 years and unions are organizing all the time, but there is just not the capacity um, to give information about organizing um, to the tens of millions of workers that want it. Surveys show that something like 50, five, zero million non-union private sector workers want to be in a union, that it, it's, it's a tremendous number of folks that are kind of hungry for this information. Um, standard unions are talking to workers all the time, but again, there's just not the capacity to reach out. So what we need is just more efforts to provide education and training about how to organize. And look, any small group of workers at any workplace can start organizing today. Um, there are more formal ways of doing it and there are less formal ways of doing it. And so EWOC is just, it's one program that's out there that I think has been growing and been really successful in finding ways to educate and train many, many more workers in how to do this. Right. And, and can you just uh, break down like the, this very pretty simple approach that was set up at, at the beginning you know, when EWOC was uh, founded two years ago, where it's, it's basically like a, a, a digital hotline where people can submit a form and then they'll hear back from one of your organizers within 72 hours. Uh, it's simple, but ingenious. And, and, and can you just kind of describe uh, how that's uh, worked and, and what kind of people you have on the other end who can uh, respond to these uh, queries? 
Yeah, and the process has evolved over time. If, if it's exactly right, a, a website was set up. I wasn't around for like the first month, so I'm sure it was a scramble. Uh, a website is set up where you can fill out a form, basically saying, hey, I'm interested in talking. And then the goal these days is to contact everybody within 72 hours. We don't often get everybody on the phone, but 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 we hope to. And we have intake organizers that will try to reach folks and do a basic interview, collecting basic uh, uh, intake information on the job and what the issues are, et cetera. Um, if the worker wants to move forward, then they are connected with an advanced organizer. I have been one of those for the last two years where we will have a series of conversations for as long as they want to about getting organizing going. Um, and we have basically kind of a five-step process, which is on the website, and we have more educational materials on there. But basically, worker-to-worker conversations are key, and we will just guide folks through that process. And we also have more formal trainings every few months that folks can go through. Um, but oftentimes, folks don't know where to start, um, and so we can provide um, kind of you know basic framework for that. It's it's not necessarily easy, and it is not without risk, and I think folks understand that. Um, but, you know, regular unions are not usually set up to kind of handle inquiries from workers all over the place. You've got to find the right union at the right time, at the right place. EWOC, I think, to its credit, is, is now kind of a basic service where it will respond and try to help any worker in any workplace, whatever they want to do. It's a basic level of solidarity that's really needed. Yeah. So uh, oh, go sorry. ahead, one. Go well, ahead. I was just going to add quickly is like, I think it really goes, like we underestimate how far it goes to just have somebody on the other end to say, hey, this sounds like it's rough what you're going through. Let's maybe bounce some ideas off on like what we can do next. And that next, right, looks like a totally a million different things. It can be just like having literally one conversation with a coworker that they haven't yet had is like they have a problem. They're like, I don't know what to do. I'm about to quit. Let's try this last thing. And they do it. And then I think like, the I think what we always talk about is like the effect of that first initial conversation or the effect of EWA coming into support. A lot of the it, a lot of the like ultimate effects we don't even see. Like uh, sometimes workers will qu- end up quitting this job, but they'll take what that what that support kind of gave them into a next job. Or I think something that also is is very unique with EWAC is that a lot of the workers that come through us, they, they sort of graduate into being organizers, organizers themselves. And so there are these like levels of being involved in EWOC that shift and change. And some of them will quit the job that they came first to us to organize um, and become EWOC organizers and they'll be on the other side. So I think that there's this, it takes like a really inter- really robust and well-organized internal organizing structure of these intake volunteers, as well as this kind of uh, external, you know, stuff that we're building up. So I've- that's that's um you know an interesting an interesting comment that you're making about the internal structure um i think in in my coverage and and just what i've been noticing lately with this sort of shifting time we're in where people are noticing a lot of things that they're unhappy with i see that organizations are successful when they spend uh, a decent amount of energy maybe like like you know 15 to 25% on their energy at least on internal organizing and the group we just spoke with uh before you guys Brooklyn Eviction Defense uh tenant organizers they too have a successful model very much in part because they spend a lot of time in internal organizing and i'm making that point um just so organizers who are listening <laughs> uh, can you can hear that you know but tell us a little bit about uh uh why don't you start one and then we'll have Eric add on tell us about who's reaching out to you and then just in a little bit more detail so our listeners can understand sort of like the breadth of options you offer from a phone uh, call to a full out you know either maybe um, independent union campaign or joining another union or yeah for sure I think um, 
Yeah. So yeah, I, I, to your point, um, I, I was, I heard in another talk, somebody saying, you know, this isn't, all of this isn't rocket science. It's just really, really difficult work. And a lot of that difficult work is basically just like a ton of follow-up, a ton of like consistency, um, a lot of pushing, finding the right ways to push individual people in the ways that they should be pushed and not just like pushing them to do something. Um, I think that just to give you a sense of the, the breadth, I think, you know, like I mentioned, we had, uh, you know, our fabulous, we have a fabulous kind of internal like media team as well. And like uh, an angle that we had come up with was this kind of like, don't quit organize angle, right? It's like a lot of, because I think that that's reflective of a lot of the workers that come through and fill out forums is that they're at this moment where it's a little bit of a desperate condition. Like this is maybe the last thing that they're willing to do before, you know, they leave and they go to another job. Um, and basically emphasizing how important that step is that they took to to fill out this form so the breadth of workers looks like you know retail like i said a a lot of like uh traditionally kind of like unorganized or difficult to organize sectors so like retail service you know uh restaurants grocery stores like all across that and also i think a lot of nonprofit workers um i know eric you've worked with some like bookstore workers as well in the past um so i think that's really the breadth of it. And, and, and the, the services that we offer really range from plugging people into the upcoming trainings we have. We're also, I think that our training team is doing a lot of sort of creative thinking about like what kinds of new trainings, how to design trainings um, to be effective. So plugging them into trainings, um, like I said, someone on the other end to just be like, hey, I had a weird conversation today with a worker. What do you think about this? And then just having, you know, an organizing support be like, I think this, or I think it's good. Um, and Frequent check-ins, um, I think a lot of the times the first initial steps is identifying leaders in, in their coworkers as well as um, identifying is- like widely felt issues in their workplace and how to mobilize people around them. Um, so we'll do that. And that can look like, you know, helping them write a petition, helping them kind of get that out. Or, yeah, like you mentioned, initially, eventually when they get to a point where they feel like they're ready and we feel like it's a good good step to connect them with the union, et cetera. But, Eric, am I missing something? Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, folks from a wide variety of uh, sectors that are, I think, essential workers like food service um, and education and healthcare uh, have reached out. I think at this point, it's it's well over 3000 workers that have reached out at like six, seven hundred different employers. And not all of them start organizing. I think, you know, again, as Wen says, some of them, some of them are about to quit or, or, or they realize they don't want to do it. But for those that do want to go forward, yeah, it's conversations among coworkers. It's forming an organizing committee. So you're not doing this alone. It's like getting a full list of workers and having conversations and finding out the key issues that folks have and then thinking about taking action. And one kind of paradynamic action is to get hopefully a majority of workers to sign on to a petition asking for like three to five things and like doing what we call a march on the boss. We like bring it to your boss saying, we need these things. And I think what's amazing is that oftentimes with enough organizing and enough strength and solidarity, you can make gains, you can win some things in the workplace. And so that's kind of like that's union organizing. It's not formal. There's no formal recognition. There's no contract, but folks are doing it. Um, then we would say at that point, take stock of where you're at. And if you want to make this more formal, we could think about doing a union election, getting recognition and bargaining a contract, uh, which is the more formal way that, that folks can do it. But I want to emphasize that any group of workers can basically form a union of their own right now and start organizing. You don't have to wait for anybody. And so just, you know, reach out to EWAC and we can talk about it. And and Eric, uh, tell me quickly about the us, about the difference between uh, like an independent union and already established union and how we're seeing independent unions pop up with like ALU and Starbucks Workers United. 
Yeah, it's, it's a huge conversation. I mean, there are you know a few, several dozen established unions um, that will help workers organize, and then workers will join those unions. But that's not the only route. Workers can also form their own independent union. It's not necessarily easy to do, but the Amazon workers in Staten Island have showed us that they can do it. They formed their own Amazon labor union. It's independent, and they organized and won an election at one facility. They lost the, the, the next one, um, you know, which, which we'll have to see what comes out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so they, they run their own union. You, know, you have bylaws, you do your own fundraising, you elect your own officers. Later on, if they want, they can affiliate with an established union. And maybe that's a conversation that will happen. So if that's something that workers are interested in doing, you know, EWOC can certainly help us, you know, help you strategize about how to do that. It's, it's a little bit uncharted terrain because it's not done that often, but it is, it is talked about more often now and it should be. That's really good. Right. Uh, we're we're going to have to go here in about uh, 30 seconds. Uh, uh, can you highlight real quickly uh, uh, unions that you have uh, helped to uh, incubate or, or workforces that have unionized with EWOC's help? And then and then also let us know how, how people can get in touch with you. Well, just one example is, is a group of bookstore workers in Santa Cruz that did kind of informal organizing among themselves with a petition to win some demands around COVID issues. Then they wanted to formalize the process. So I helped connect them with an established union called the Communication Workers of America. They ran an election and won. I think it was something like 18 to 9 um, about a year ago. And they've been bargaining a contract with CWA's help um, ever since then. Hopefully we'll finish soon. Um, so that's just one example. And I think you know, part of it is finding the right union that is able to take on uh, uh, helping the workers um, at the right time. So that's certainly one avenue. Yeah. yeah, I think also a goal is to present as many options for the workers that we're supporting as possible, right? So when right. they get to a point, it's like, what is possible? Um, but yeah, with that said, I will plug, if you want to get support to organize your workplace, like Eric said, at any time, if you're thinking about it, just reach out. There'll be someone on the other end. Um, it's just workerorganizing.org slash support is the forum. If you fill that out, somebody will get in touch with you in the next, in the, you know, the coming days. Um, and we do have an upcoming workplace training. So we offer these like longer trainings with EWOC, but we also offer, seconds. Oh, we also offer truncated, uh, like 90-minute trainings that we're going to be offering on June 2nd and June 3rd, um, one in the evening and one in the a.m. And you can see those and register for them. Um, it's just bit.ly, so bit.ly slash NYC EWOC training. So NYC E-W-O-C training. And then okay. uh, you can register for that. Thanks, right, we'll everybody. To, sure, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Wen Zhuang and Eric Dernbach from the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks guys. Right. Uh, so uh, that uh, is uh, about the end of our show. Thanks to our board operator, Reggie Johnson. We'll be preempted next Tuesday, but we'll be back in two weeks on Tuesday, June 7th at our regular time. Reminder to pick up the new issue of the Indy around the city and uh, or look for us online at independent.org. Uh, Ambo, what's our parting song for this evening? So as you said, today is Bob Dylan's 81st birthday, and my good friend Aaron Gammon uh, organized a whole 70 songs. He's crazy. 70 songs and five hours at Washington Square Park. Go check him out. He's always there playing Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan from Canarsie, he says, and here's him singing today. Baby's got new Makes love just like a woman's.
she breaks down just like a little girl. Queen Mary, she is my friend. Yes, I believe I'll go see her again. Nobody has to guess that her baby can't be blessed. Till she is seized, finally, she's like all the rest.